Hey, Illuminati, it's break of the Shade Chamber Churlman of the Board, here to introduce another guest episode. We're circling back to a topic from our pre-Sumeru season finale, the concern about how Sumeru handled its real-world reference materials. The cultures that make up Sumeru's aesthetic base have historically been misinterpreted in media by more dominant voices like the Anglosphere or East Asia. While there's a lot of discourse about these cultures from well-intended outsiders, there's been a lack of authentic voices from these cultures themselves. So, we want to provide a platform for them. Our first guest in this endeavor is Amir, known on Twitter as Boram76. Amir brings a lifetime of immersion in the Iranian and Persian cultures that are seen throughout Sumeru society. But hey, Sumeru's cultural references go beyond Iranian and Persian cultures only. Amir has extensively researched and spoken with other Genshin Impact fans from diverse backgrounds, and has delved deeply into the myriad of influences present in Sumeru. It would actually be a disservice to try and fit it all into a single Shade Chamber episode before we move on to Fontaine. So to that end, we're proud to announce Sumeru 101, a mini-series featuring Amir that will release periodically alongside the Shade Chamber. Sumeru 101 will be a long-form lecture series with minimal editing that dives deep into most of the cultural inspirations of Sumeru, along with its lore and characters. This short two-hour episode is a sample of what's in store. So without further ado, please enjoy. Welcome back to the Shade Chamber. Oyo vs. core development on Sumeru is coming to a close. Uh, the region totals four patches of content representing roughly 5,000 kilometers worth of different real-world cultures. To help facilitate the quality of the discussion, we'd like to welcome uh, Borem76, better known as Amir, to the show. Amir is an Iranian-born psych student, writer, and musician responsible for authoring several fascinating Twitter threads about Oyo versus good, bad, and ugly handling of cultural representation in the Sumeru region. We're happy he's agreed to impart some of his wisdom on us here tonight. So, Amir, how did you get into starting to write these uh, these cultural deep dive threads about Sumeru? Okay, so first off, I want to say thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Uh, it's really great to um, have this chance to share um, the things that I know with everyone that um, I'm sure that a lot of people haven't had the opportunity to uh, gain knowledge about. So it's something I'm very grateful for. Um, about your question, I noticed uh, that Sumeru was going to be a very unique region uh, pretty early on because we already got a lot of lore about Sumeru uh, in the previous nations. For example, we would encounter NPCs from Sumeru. Uh, we had an idea that there was going to, going to be an academia. We knew the uh, name of the Archon. So we had a fairly decent amount of information and by then, I wasn't really active on Twitter or anything. I was just kind of excited for this region because I already knew that it was going to feature a lot of my culture. For example, uh, most of the NPCs uh, that we encountered before in the previous nations, they had Persian names. And they were names that are exclusively used in my country, Iran. And I could tell them. And in, in Izuma, when we realized about the, uh, the Sapzarus festival, I could immediately tell that that was a reference to our new year. Then also the fact that there was going to be stuff from Dharmic religions that would be Indian religions because there was the name of the Archon, Lizarlur Kusanali, uh, and the fact that they, the literal name was Sumeru, which is taken, again, uh, from Dharmic religions. 
and there were some references to the golden age of Islam as well. So I already had knowledge of the fact that there was going to be uh, different cultures used. Uh, but um, this didn't really by itself motivate me to start writing stuff on Twitter. It was only shortly before the release of Sumeru when discussions started to really get heated up. I believe it was perhaps two or three months before the release of Sumeru. Uh, and people were sharing so many things uh, from Twitter on other platforms, such as TikTok and YouTube. And a lot of it uh, was blatant misinformation that I could tell. So I decided to go and check Twitter and see what's going on. And I was honestly shocked because um, it was pure chaos, to be honest. <laughs> it was a time in which you could genuinely just make anything up about Sumeru and people would just buy it, right? Like you could... Uh, some of the most common criticisms were Orientalism and colorism. Now, both of these are, at points, valid criticism about Sumeru because there is instances of both colorism and Orientalism in Sumeru. But the problem was, back then, you could just call anything... Like, because the leaks kept coming in, right? Like, neural leaks uh, kept coming in. And you could just make a post call something Orientalist or uh, problematic or racist uh, without explaining why it's like that, most people think that the cultures in the Middle East are monoliths, and they usually think of Arab. Like they can't distinguish between Turks, Arabs, Iranians, North Africans, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is a problem in general in the West where they just lump all of us together. Yeah, so the, the yeah. background on that is like, if you remember way back, the very first Sumeru character that anybody had seen in Genshin was Sino. Sino yes. was the one who appears in the webtoon comic as well as in the uh, the story trailer. And yeah. uh, like, it is very he is obviously Egyptian coded. Yes, exactly. And, and so people were like, okay, that's what Sumeru is. I think at that point people were assuming that maybe Sumeru is named after Sumer, like you yeah, know, the. the the ancient civilization. Exactly. And so then curveball number two is when you learn the title of the Archon, which is Kusanali, which is yes. very specifically Indian. And so people yes. are like, what is this region? We've got yeah. the Egypt. We've got the Indian. Yeah. And then what comes up more and more is that is the strong uh, Persian influence, which does kind of act as the medium into which the rest of the multiculturalism of Sumeru is is kind of combined um yeah but by then like everyone's already talking about the southeast asia the south asian and the and the uh, north african middle eastern representation uh mm -hmm. so Sumeru kind of always had a lot stacked against it and not not without unfairness again like it is a it is a fraught um group of cultures to represent and and we are not here to unilaterally defend Mihoyo, they dropped the ball quite a bit but but the the nuance of it and where they succeeded uh where they dropped the ball and how they dropped the ball is arguably the more interesting and uh a solution oriented discussion than like painting it all with a broad brush yeah i mean even prior to sumeru like prior to its release i didn't really have high super high expectations for sumeru i already knew that it was going to be like this uh, fantasy representation. Uh, and when you are from one of these cultures and have continuously seen your culture 
being either conflated with other cultures or just not represented properly, your expectations kind of also drop. The bar is on the ground. Yeah, so I kind of never had high expectations either. I was just kind of excited. Like, it'll sound silly, but like when I would encounter an NPC with a Persian name, like for example, Padwana in, in, uh, in Azuma, like I was so excited just to see that. Like I, I didn't... I didn't even have expectations for like um, the fact that, for example, they would respect skin colors because I knew that these kind of problems are rampant in Eastern Asian media. Uh, and based on the things I saw, I've seen from Fate uh, or the series Magi, like I, my expectations weren't high. And I think Sumeru, um, in general, did many things better than other Eastern Asian media, but it also repeated uh, some key mistakes that other Eastern Asian media, but not just Eastern Asian media in general, but media as a whole, because a lot of the mistakes or a lot of uh, the stereotypical depictions of these cultures that you see in Eastern Asian media are directly influenced by Western depictions. Um, and because Western media is very popular, it has the power to influence uh, people's perceptions everywhere. Yeah. One of the things I said in the pre-Sumeria episode was, you know, when it comes to Orientalist portrayals, Hoyoverse as a Chinese company, and China has its own history with with those regions that is different from the Western portrayals, so it is going to have a different nuance. But like you said, Western media is so dominant, like, you know, thousands of years of international relations between China and the Middle East is not going to stand up to you know, Disney's Aladdin. It's just so much yeah. more visible and it's so much more formative of people's impressions of these countries. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Aladdin wasn't an authentic story in 1001 Nights. It was added by this French author called Antoine Galen. He added three stories, Aladdin, Alibaba, as well as uh, Sanbad. The only difference with Sanbad is that Sanbad was a, a very old story. So that was that was an authentic story that was much older with Aladdin and Alibaba, they were both very new and they were written by a Western author. So they have no authentic source within um, the history of 1001 Nights itself, which is why it even um, the genesis of it was stereotypical perception. But then it became even worse uh, the more it got uh, depicted into different types of media that today people consume, like millions of people consume. And also this kind of connects to uh, this idea that a lot of people seem to have, and uh, it's it's supposed to be like a, a gotcha at people who criticize um, when cultures are being stereotyped. Uh, this notion that fiction doesn't affect reality, which is very funny because from a historical perspective, it's the exact opposite. Um, I think we can talk about Orientalism in detail at a later time um, uh, along our discussion. But uh, Orientalism and stereotypical perceptions of Middle East and South Asia were by large perpetuated through fiction and artistic depiction. Like, why would someone encounter uh, something related to the Middle East and the first thing that comes to their mind is belly dancing, yeah. magic carpet, Aladdin, magic lamp? Like, it's, it's very obvious that it's, a, a, it's an instance of reality being affected directly by fiction. I think in order to um, allow people to understand uh, the positives and negatives of what Sumeru is supposed to be, 
people need to um, get an idea of what are the cultures used in Sumeru. Most of the player base have this general idea that Sumeru is based on the Middle East and South Asia. But it's very important to keep in mind that Middle East and South Asia do not even sufficiently describe of how absolutely diverse the cultural span is for Sumeru. Middle East, um, there are often different uh, categorizations of which countries are included in the Middle East. It's usually supposed to be Western Asia and North Africa, um, but sometimes not all the countries are included from Western Asia and North Africa. Like I've seen classifications from the Middle East that only include Egypt from North Africa, um, whereas pretty much all of North Africa is included in Sumeru. Same for Western Asia. All Western Asian countries are relevant to Sumeru. So usually Armenia and Azerbaijan are not included in the Middle East, but their cultures are relevant to Sumeru as well. So it's kind of better to describe this as like Western Asia and North Africa. And in a sense that I would say that the um, cultural and ethnic diversity of these two regions exceeds the entirety of the continent of Europe. Uh, and what, when I say that, what I mean is most European countries, most people in Europe, about more than, I think, 90% of people speak Indo-European languages. And the identity and cultures of all of these countries, while they, they're each unique to their own countries, they share fundamental characteristics that uh, are connected to Indo-European mythos. In Western Asia and North Africa, we have three different language families with significant number of speakers. I'm talking about the Indo-European family, the Afro-Asiatic family, and the Turkic family of languages. And each one of these ethnicities each own have their sub-ethnic branches. So we're really talking about tens of different ethnicities and tens of different languages in just this region, Western Asia and North Africa. That's how diverse we're talking about. And then South Asia itself is also extremely diverse because like the Indian subcontinent itself and the country of India, which is like, uh, I think over 200 different languages, I hear the word Middle Eastern culture a lot. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the biggest misconceptions that exists. And it, it leads people to think that this uh, there's only like one culture that all of these people share with one another when each really have their own completely different background, not just linguistically, but also culturally. Really, the best way to describe it is Sumeru is a reflection of China's historical experience with the Silk Road uh, and the countries that are kind of were kind of along this road. Now, we know that Buddhism got to China and Eastern Asia in general through the Silk Road. That was responsible for the spread of Buddhism throughout the entirety of Eastern Asia. And the first region that you get to uh, when you go from Liyue to Sumeru is a rainforest region that is heavily influenced by Buddhism. There are so many locations that, that have terminologies from Buddhism. The Archon's title is from Buddhism. And then we have Ruka Devada, the previous Archon, whose name title is also from Buddhism. Uh, we have the Arnor quest that has a lot of references to Buddhism itself. Uh, and also, if we're going to talk about from a geographical standpoint, the route that Buddhism traveled to China would be th through South Asia, then Southeast Asia, and then to Eastern Asia. And this entire route was filled with rainforests. And this includes both uh, a huge chunk of India, uh, especially the northeastern part of India, as well as Southeastern Asia, and then to China. 
So uh, this is very important from a historical viewpoint uh, because there existed uh, not just the Silk Road itself, but also neighboring kingdoms uh, and, uh, and empires to China at the time, which were first off involved with the Silk Road itself, but also they included so many of these cultures. Not to be too history teacher about it, but like trade routes were the internet back of that yeah. when you when you traded goods you traded ideas and that's how they flowed if you wanted something several countries away you had to send someone to get there you had to learn how to uh, communicate with each other to facilitate a trade and once you can talk you can share ideas and that's why these trade routes became this highway for information for cultural uh concepts and stuff to flow between all of these cultures yeah i that's that's a really good point like when framed from this perspective, I think it really does a good job showing why like academia actually had to be in Sumeru just because um, as a sort of like nexus of the, um, the sort of the cultural marketplace of ideas in moving uh, back and forth uh, to and from the real world China, essentially, um, Sumeru sort of represents like the embodied um instance of really like different ideas and cultures kind of coming together and being thrown around and i think the idea of sumeru having like the internet in terms of the akasha terminal Ooh. makes a lot of sense when you look at like regions that had a lot of trade and exchange of ideas the historical existence of multiculturalism neighboring to china is undeniable uh and it, it also reflected their own experience with the silk road uh, and the Silk Road was obviously long. It didn't end just in India. It actually went up to North Africa. And even if we look at the way Sumeru is designed, we go from directly to the west of Liwe to first off being a rainforest to west-west until we get to a desert. And that's exactly how the historical uh, Silk Road worked too. Uh, and they use multiple historical eras. So it also includes the time during which Islam started to rise and uh, primarily Arab dominant kingdoms started to uh, become relevant, their influence not just on the Middle East, but also North Africa. Like, for example, they include stuff from both pre-Islamic and post-Islamic North Africa. Uh, so it's not just a geographical thing, but also multiple timelines in history. Uh, and also another point which I want to add and which was really fun is the fact that they make a very direct reference to the spice trade. Uh, that was also very relevant uh, in the Silk Road. And that's due to the fact that just before Sumero, we got the Spices from the West uh, event in which we had with the NPC Nozofarin. Uh, and the fact that this spice trade for China, from a historical perspective, it was all supposed to come from the West, right? right. Uh, and the fact that they make like references to stuff like the saffron, like the, for example, the Potosara flower that you see in Sumero, that's supposed to be based off saffron. And like that was one of the most important spices, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that they, they they make so many clear and direct references to China's uh, relationship with the Silk Road and the cultures in it, I think that if we were to distinguish of what Oyevers tried to do with all of these cultures, uh, as opposed to what other media have done, it would really be this particular point. That is a very generous and 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 fair um, assessment of it, and and one that 
we don't hear a lot. I think they should be taken to task for possible conflation, but it is important to uh, realize the historical context as well. They made Sumeru so large just because of the fact that they used so many cultures. They kind of tried to compensate through uh, making it uh, pretty much three times the size of an average nation in Tibet. And they made uh, four subregions being the Dharma Forest, Greater Rattan, the Desert of Hadramaveth. Although the Desert of Hadramaveth is part of the Great Rattan, but it's kind of a subregion of its own. And then the last region, Girdle of the Sands. All right. So the first one uh, that we're going to talk about would be the Dharma Forest uh, being the first region that we encounter once we enter Sumeru. Uh, now, the inspirations for this uh, particular region uh, is something that you would describe as primarily Indo-Iranian with Western Asian influences from different uh, time periods. Um, and I'm going to start with the Indo-Iranian part because this is really the most important uh, component of it, especially with uh, their extensive use of Dharmic religions and Zoroastrianism. Now, Dharmic religions refers to religions that come from India. So examples of that being Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, pretty much everything that came from India originally. They really tried to incorporate uh, the concepts from uh, Dharmic religions. Uh, now, Zoroastrianism is really interesting because Zoroastrianism is a sister religion to Hinduism. Uh, they both come from a prototype set of mythos among Indo-Iranian people. It was called the Proto-Indo-Iranian religion. Uh, and there was a language called the Proto-Indo-Iranian language. They basically shared the same language and religion. And then through the Indo-Iranian migrations, they kind of uh, diverged into the Indian subcontinent and the Iranian plateau. Uh, and the Central Asia, and their myths kind of devolved, uh, they, their myths evolved on their own, uh, but a lot of stuff between Zoroastrianism and Hinduism are similar. They're like uh, deities that are identical in the two of them. Uh, the language of Vedic Sanskrit, which is the language for Vedas, the original, basically, scripture for Hinduism, and then uh, the Avesta, which are the Zoroastrian scriptures, and the Avesta language with the Vedic Sanskrit, they share so many natural cognates. And they are languages that look very similar. And they played around this idea so much d during the Rainforest region. Like an example of that would be Apam woods uh, that we see. And Apam is a word that means of the waters. Uh, and uh, this word was relevant uh, a lot because of the fact that there is a deity called Apam Napat, uh, which means uh, child or son of the waters. Uh, and it's oh. a deity that exists in both Hinduism and in Zoroastrianism. In Zoroastrianism, it's a primarily water-related deity, uh, and it's one deity. But in, in Hinduism, Apamnapat seems to be more like a title uh, that is associated with uh, other deities. But the point being is, because there are so many natural similarities between Hinduism and Zoroastrianism, and the fact that there are natural cognates, and the fact that they're sister religions, they played around the idea so much of using these two religions. Like even when we look at the Archon, Lesser Lord Kusanali, she really is a dual representation of Buddhism and Zoroastrianism because on one side, she has the, obviously, the Kusanali Jataka from Buddhism. And on one side, she has the Anahita from Zoroastrianism. There is the Anahitian blessing in the game that is associated with her directly referencing the goddess Anahita. 
as well as the fact that her constellation is referencing Aura Mazda, who's the Lord of Wisdom. And Mazda just means wisdom in the Avesta language. So she really is like this dualistic representation of two religions that are um, similar to each other in a way that they have similar origins, but ultimately developed by people of different ethnic groups. And, and this is part of the give and take of like the cultural representation in Siberia, because it's like Nahida is this extremely thoughtful intertwining of these these two religions with these interesting parallels, but then they throw a curveball and her signature web is just a magic fucking light. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. Honestly, that, honestly, I think that's the funniest part because it just seems so lackluster in terms of effort. <laughs> it's so Sumeru. It's just like the swings yeah. and the misses and the hits. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... It's like, come on, guys, you did so much research on all of these religions. And out of all God. the things, out of all the things that you could use, a magic lamp, You could have really. given her, like, a little crystalline lotus, because, like, that's a symbol of both faiths. Yeah. Blah, blah. It's like, no, magic fucking lamp, boy. And it's called, like, the lamp of a thousand witches or yeah. something. It's like, oh, jeez. Oh, no. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Psych, it's Aladdin time, motherfucker. <laughs> and that's, that's just just like the 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 fun and the frustration of yeah, going just, through Sumeru. It's so goofy because, like, as you mentioned, like, imagine uh, a catalyst um, that has like the lotus theme on it. Like, that would have been so nice because the magic lamp. It's just it has no business doing there. Like, it's, <laughs> it's really just it's the so ugly scary. duckling of uh, references that they used. I. It was just like lackluster. It was like, okay, what do we use? It's so hard to think. We'll just throw the magic lamp it's over like there. It's like a punchline. It's just like, yeah. you did all this work and you couldn't... This is what you got, Jesus Christ. But uh, we also see examples of Southeast Asian architecture, uh, specifically uh, Indonesian architecture, on a lot of the houses that you see in Sumeru. Uh, there's a type of Indonesian architecture called the Tobo Batak. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly. I'm very sorry to... Uh, all the Indonesians who are going to watch this, but... If you know how to pronounce it, please tell us in the comments. Absolutely. Like and subscribe. <laughs> but uh, it's called Toba Batak, and um, it's, it basically has like this curved roof that goes up like that. And it, it, you can pretty much see it everywhere in Sumeru. Uh, and it also bears resemblance to Polynesian architecture. Uh, that we see uh, in America as a whole. That's the diaspora of the Polynesian people. They came from Southeast Asia. Exactly. They came from there. So, and uh, it's like, that's not even the only kind of uh, Indonesian architecture you see. Like we see the Arnor houses and uh, they are also like inspired by this uh, specific type of traditional houses in Papua in Indonesia. They're kind of always designed and they're built very close to each other. Uh, and they kind of have this similar look to the way the RR houses are built, which not only you find in Vanarana, but also just throughout the entirety of the Sumer rainforest region. Oh my god, they are they are so cute. Yeah, they're so cute, right? And I think like um the influence of Indonesian architecture is very clear uh, as far as I can see. And I think that this also supports the idea that the the whole rainforest thing also connects to southeastern Asia as well. We walked out into the rainforest, and now we are in the city, which is presided over by the academia. And so, yes. what are the influences there? 
Okay, so academia is probably the biggest uh, example of Zoroastrian. Well, not the biggest example because that's the girdle of the sands. But <laughs> one of the biggest examples of Zoroastrianism is the structure of the academia. In a sense that uh, the six schools of the academia, each of them are based on the six divinations uh, of the Lord of Wisdom and Zoroastrianism. So these six divinations are called uh, the Amisha Sapanta. And uh, they're each an aspect of Aura Mazda. Uh, expanding a little bit, uh, there are titles in academia. So there's Dastur and Herbad. Uh, and both of these were titles of Zoroastrian priests. So they really just took direct references to priests and religious concepts and just inserted them into the structure of the academia. And the original Chinese is much more relevant to the kind of inspirations they used for Sumeru. Because in, in the Chinese, uh, it's an institute of religious decree. That's what the title of the academia is in the original Chinese. Weird. And the it's, fact, it's recognized as a more religious? Yes, it's, yeah, oh. in, yeah, it's called the Sumeru Institute of Religious Decree. That's what the Chinese... Huh, I, I feel like that adds a whole other dimension to the plot. I, exactly. Because so much of the plot in academia is about like moving past or creating their own deity. Like Exactly. Making it like a religious institution just completely changes the context. Because it was like, it's weird that how come the the culmination of your idea of humanity is to make your own god when, like, the story of Genshin is like, it's kind of like humanity getting past the gods. It's like, oh, it's because this started as a fundamentally religious institution because knowledge, gaining knowledge is a service to the goddess of wisdom. And this is where I connect to another reference for academia that is very relevant. And that's uh, the House of Wisdom in Baghdad and right. uh, the Golden Age of Islam, because that's also relevant to uh, what the academia is supposed to be, especially because they reference real life scientists from the Golden Age of Islam for, uh, for the academia. The biggest example of that would be Al-Haytham himself, uh, based on you know, Al-Haytham, the historical scientist from the Golden Age of Islam. Uh, but they also use other scientists, like because Golden Age of Islam was a time period in which Arab and Persian scientists worked together to basically do many scientific discoveries. That's what it is at its core. Yeah, uh, that's kind of what I thought the academia was only going to be uh, going yeah. in was this this Islamic scholars, especially because a lot of the stuff that we know them for is super relevant to Genshin, such as astronomy. Yes. Uh, chemistry, life sciences, mm -hmm. and absolutely. Like that. Oh, and let's not forget Tagmari because he's also very important, uh, being like a botanist of that era. But like he, right. uh, uh, he was also Arab, but just that in terms of location, he was a little bit different from the other scientists that lived during that era. In a sense that he lived in Andalusia, uh, and yes, and the village that he lived in at the time. Uh, was Amazil. Basically, the village, the name of the village, Taknar. Um, and, and I don't think that's the actual pronunciation in the Amazil language. Taknar is the Arabic pronunciation. Uh, the original word is from Amazil, which is a, an indigenous North African uh, ethno-linguistic group, I should say. Uh, and basically, the village that he lived in was at the time Amazil territory. Uh, and he was called Tagmeri as in a sense that he belonged to that village, but he yeah. is actually Arab. Right. He kind of shares the same case as uh, Nahida because she also has the same situation 
in which she simultaneously references Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, well, Dharmic religions and Zoroastrianism, right? Like she also is dualistic in the same way that uh, Talmari is uh, dualistic. Right. So they do this with both of these characters. But there are also like, uh, it's also important to understand there are NPCs in uh, Sumeru City which have, who have uh, Turkish names, right? The language Ottoman Turkish, it had so many loan words from Persian and Arabic. Uh, and the Ottoman Empire encompassed Iraq. Uh, so, the, first off, the Ottoman Empire itself was technically culturally diverse as well, and it included the other cultures that were previously a part of the Golden Age of Islam, which is why it's important to understand that there are like several layers of historical errors used. Uh, but another thing that I want to add, just to the in terms of like the world design and everything, is the music. Uh, and most of the music that we hear throughout all of the rainforest region is inspired by Hindustani classical music, uh, which is a well, basically Indian music, and they use a lot of uh, traditional instrument. Um, and they actually made a video about this, and uh, they described the fact that for the rainforest region, they primarily used uh, South Asian and Indian instruments. Uh, and then for the desert, they use Middle Eastern unquote, instruments. Uh, but a lot of the music that you hear in the rainforest overworld is very Hindustani kind of themed. Uh, but when you go to Sumeru City, uh, the theme of the music changes a little bit and it becomes more Western Asian. Uh, like you see like Persian touches to the music. Uh, you see, uh, you hear um, even stuff... Uh, that resembles Arabic music, Turkish music, uh, even the battle themes as well. Um, like you can pretty much hear influences from each um, musical tradition in the entirety of Western Asia and all the battle themes. Also, the cities are where you will find the most culturally diverse uh, designs because you have NPCs pretty much from like with names from all of them. Like you have a lot of Persian NPCs, a lot of NPCs with Arabic names. NPCs with Turkish names. So it's only natural that the music that plays in there also is a mix of a lot of different musical traditions. And now we're going to continue our, our cultural tour through Sumeru and talk about the desert region. Um, people don't say this enough. I love the desert. It is so fucking pretty in Genshin. It is absolutely gorgeous. And they absolutely like designed it to a t it's just like the colors everything mwah. but it's also very clearly a case of the product before the authenticity and in this case i think they made the right choice because i think the environmental designers knew that the desert of sumeru was going to be their one and only chance to make like a beautiful desert uh there are other deserts mentioned like the mari javari which is just supposed to be this like blasted wasteland and so they're like, this is our, our chance to really show like the natural beauty of a desert biome. And so what they did is they took every single cool desert throughout the entire world and put it in the Sumerian desert. And that's why you look over there and there's like, you know, these beautiful, huge Sahara dunes. And then this part, it's like more hilly, kind of like Afghanistan. And then there's a part that's just, it's just Arizona. There's just like, <laughs> there's just like rock arches and shit from Utah. <laughs> Gotta love those, those cactuses. It's just... Yeah, so it's like whatever desert you've got, you got pyramids, you got camels, you got wily coyotes. They're all here, and like that's fine because um 
obviously there weren't any cultures being represented or misrepresented. It was just really a, a visual pastiche of everything very cool and beautiful about the desert. So we'll give them a pass for that. Um, they, that was their one shot to do it. So let's get back to our tour through, oh God, what is that checkpoint called? Caravan Robot? A caravan Robot. So yeah, that, that one is basically just our connection between the rainforest region and uh, the desert region. And you already start to hear traces of music that is mo more uh, associated with a desert uh, in Caravan Robot because it sounds very different from the other kinds of music that you hear in the rainforest region that it gives you like an idea that you're in for like somewhere. And it makes sense that like if uh, Ormos and Sumeria City are like the the more cosmopolitan places or there's like a lot of trade, a lot of mingling, and then like as you get into the desert and it's more remote, then like the cultural mixing starts to kind of fall away. Fewer people are making it out there. Like the thing about uh, the Great Red Sand is the fact that um, the name, because like in the original Chinese, it's the Great Red Sand Sea. And uh, the name is obviously referencing the Great uh, Sand Sea in North Africa, which is between Egypt and Libya. Uh, but of course, like that's not like the only thing because um, like I would say the desert as a whole represents uh, the entirety of North Africa and not just Egypt to Libya. Uh, the Great Red Sand focuses a lot on the ancient Egyptian civilization uh, due to the fact that we have so much references to the mythology as well as the architecture of ancient Egypt. For example, we have so many Coptic terminologies uh, on the map, right? The names of places, there's a lot of Coptic terms. Uh, we see the obvious you know, reference to the pyramids. Uh, and we have depictions of Anubis, like clear depictions, depictions of Anubis all over the desert. Uh, there are also some Arabic terminologies as well. And this is perfectly in line with the fact that there was an Arab conquest of Egypt in which, um, and obviously Egypt is now primarily inhabited by Arabic speaking people. Uh, there are obviously, um, for example, Dar al-Shifa. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm very sorry. I'm not Arab. But uh, I think it's really reflects the historical sort of progression of North Africa and what happened to it. We also have the Oru village, um, which uh, is very interesting because it has architecture that is inspired by peninsular Arabian architecture. Like, for example, the kind of architecture that you find in countries like Yemen and Oman. Uh, and this is also in line with the fact that um, because of the fact that there are indigenous people to the desert in real life, they're called the Bedouins, and they live uh, both in the Arabian Peninsula as well as North Africa. And the Aramites, uh, by large, seem to have some inspiration from Bedouins. We're also talking about the Amazigh people, uh, who mostly inhabit today uh, in uh, Morocco, Algeria, and to a lesser extent in Tunisia, I believe. Uh, and they're, they're also a part of this because uh, obviously, they're North African, indigenous North African, but also like the fact that the Aramites, in a way, are supposed to be a representative of them too. Um, so, uh, what are what are the kind of the faith and belief systems of, I, I guess, both the Amazigh and the um, Bedouin? So, the thing about Amazigh is that I believe that their mythologies are very old, and they have their own practices. Uh, before Islam got to North Africa, they had their own mythos. 
I'm not sure to what degree those are being practiced today. And I'm not very educated on the exact uh, beliefs that they had, but uh, there were multiple types of North African mythology. Like an example of that is Punic mythology. And uh, Punic mythology was uh, the mythology of Punic people uh, who were a type of Phoenician people. And we see an example of that uh, through the Tanit. And Tanit was basically a Punic goddess. Um, so for this section, I'm going to talk uh, about the characters in Sumeru, specifically the playable characters. Now, um, the unique thing about the characters in Sumeru is that uh, each one is from a specific culture. Uh, because Sumeru includes so many cultures, um, the consequence of, of that is that we have characters from a variety of different cultures. Yeah, yeah, we're going to go to Deya next because uh, she's another in interesting one. Um, I like this character very much because she's one of the lesser known uh, characters in terms of like cultural references because a lot of people don't know the cultural background behind this character and the fact that uh, she uh, is based on a historical figure who is an indigenous North African. So there, there's an indigenous North African uh, ethnolinguistic group known as the Amazil. Uh, and uh, basically she was a queen, she was an Amazil queen um, and she fought off a, an invasion uh, to North Africa, and she basically defeated the invaders. Um, so she is a very important symbol to North Africans and to uh, to Amazigh people, um, and she's supposed to be like a symbol of resistance in a way. Just like the way... So, like, it's kind of how Kalva is to Iranians, like Deya is to uh, to Amazigh and North Africans. Like, she's supposed to be, like, uh, symbolizing resistance, because, especially because, like, she actually defeated... Um, like she did a decisive defeat against the invaders. That's why she's like, yeah, kind of like a hero uh, figure. Ironically, like she, she, the the forces that she defeats, it's an Arab invasion that she defeats against. North oh, God. is is that uh, related to the same kind of like cultural mingling that the botanist Titanari came from? Uh yes. I mean, um, the botanist thing with uh, Titanari is different. Like he, he's not supposed to be referencing any kind of resistance, but. The Amazigh component, yeah, it's it's like yes, the same the, thing. The Amazigh uh, Arab interaction, I guess. Yes, yes, exactly. It's just that um, the whole Tagnadi, um, it's it's later than than Deya from a historical perspective because Tagnadi lived during the Golden Age of Islam in Andalusia, uh, and then uh, Deya is much earlier than that. It's like during the eighth century, so it's it's um, she's she's an older figure than than, than the historical Tagnadi, um, and. Um, she is very important to Amazigh, uh, to Amazigh people. And the interesting thing about Deya is that she, her character and lore in Genshin is very much reflective of the actual historical person because she is also uh, depicted as this like uh, figure in, in the lore and the Archon quest that she has a lot of, um, what would you say? She has a heroic spirit who yeah. um, resists um, the oppression. She works with everyone to defeat the academia. So like you, you can clearly feel like she has she might not be royalty, but she has a lot of respect and kinship with people. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. She's respected by everyone in the desert. Um, they consider her as a very important figure, like a leader figure. Okay, let's get to Nilu. <laughs> now, this is going to be interesting because uh Nilu is uh one of the <laughs> I would say she's one of the most mischaracterized characters in Sumeru. Uh, especially because during uh, the unfortunate leak era, before a few months before the release of it, 
there were a lot of people specifically on the platform Twitter who were spreading misinformation that this character is completely an Orientalist character and that she has no references. Um, she is very culturally bad. Of course, this discussion didn't include any Iranians. People were just making stuff up. And, you know, the Iranian community on Twitter is very scarce, especially for Genshin. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it was um, only later that it came to our attention that something like this was happening. And then um, we started to come and talk about the fact that Nilu actually has a lot of references to our culture. I should actually start with her name. Uh, Nilu means lotus in Persian. And Nilu is the shortened version of uh, Nilufar. Uh, and Nilufar basically means lotus. And Nilu is a shortened version of it. We use the Nilu as well, too. Mm. But uh, I'm just saying it is is that the full version of the name is Nilufar. And there's an NPC called Nilufar, too, in, um, right. in Mirror City. So, uh, yeah, if Nilu means lotus, then Nilufar means, like, lotisabeth. That was a dumb joke. Okay. <laughs> No, that was good. But, like, obviously, she has lotus. Like, I don't have to explain how many lotus motifs she has on her. She, like, it's literally her constellation. She has the lotus motif all throughout her clothing. Um, her kit is based on the lotus. So, now we go to her dance. And this is really my most favorite part. And probably the most favorite part for any Iranian who plays Genshin. Is that her dance is based on a specific type of Iranian dance. It's called the classical... Persian court dance. Uh, and basically, the features of this dance is that they have a lot of refined hand movements and it's supposed to be very elegant. The origin was that it used to be um, uh, in courts, right? In a royal court. That's, that's where it originated from during the Wajar period. Also, like the dance uh, influenced a lot of dances in India as well after the Mughals um, started to, you know, rule over the Indian subcontinent and they took a lot of. Uh, stuff from Persian culture and imported it to the Indian subcontinent and Iranian dances were one of them. Her choreography is pretty much perfectly animated from classical Persian court dance. Uh, if you watch it, it's just, it, it looks very, very smooth. Like she doesn't just dance once. She danced once uh, in the Sapsarus festival. She dances again uh, in the other Archon quest. She dances uh, during her idol animations. All of it is really beautifully animated. They all have these uh, very smooth and like it, it, it kind of feels like water flowing Yeah. Uh, when you look at uh, the Iranian dances in general, um, which obviously kind of like Nilu is a Hydro user. Uh, I think it fits her extremely well. Nilu is nothing if not consistent with her motif. Very much. Yeah, I was gonna... Water, dance, lotus. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that like as like slightly irritating it was that her plot as a character seemed to kind of just be a rehash of like the school doesn't want us to dance the fact yeah. that it ends with her having sort of several like in plot dances which are well researched and are largely representative of the culture from yeah. which it's derived like knowing that that's actually paid off appropriately does kind of help with really adding to her significance yeah, sure. Also, the whole thing about her um, not being allowed to dance, this is actually something that hits very close home. And this is something that um, not just me, but a lot of Iranians have talked about. And we don't know if this was intentional. It's very unlikely that it was in, it, uh, it was intentional on their side. But it's almost the perfect mirror of the situation in our country right now. Because um, huh. um, as you know, in Iran right now, there's an authoritarian regime and it's, uh, it's a theocratic regime. 
and women have very little freedom in Iran right now. Uh, and one of the things that uh, this regime does is that it dislikes our ancient culture and uh, it wants to sort of direct everything into a very compact religious um, uh, sort of box in a way. Mm-hmm. So stuff like the classical Persian dance, they don't really like it. Um, you will almost never see, or well, not just almost never, but you will never see anyone uh, practicing the classical Persian dance in the streets. They can't do it. Like women can't do it because they don't have the freedom to do it. So the dance is kind of uh, being forgotten and kind of dying. Uh, and the fact that uh, Nilu is constantly uh, being bashed for doing her dance by the academia, which is also, in my view, a very um, interesting reflection of theocracy. The fact that like Nilu, as a character who's from Iranian culture and her dance being like that, and the fact that that dance is today being frowned upon and being oppressed, like it meant so much for not just me, but for a lot of other Iranian players to see her in that context, like resisting against it, uh, and the fact that she kept going for what she believed to be right, uh, and the fact that they won at the end, like this meant so much. Oh. And um, yeah, that, yeah, and it's it's something that like most of the Iranian player base that I've talked to, almost all of them are women. So it's like Iranian women relating to this character who is kind of supposed to be like a representative of Iranian women. Oh, that was that's wonderful. Beautiful. Yeah, so um, I actually think, too, that one aspect, too, I think this actually relates back to what you were saying previously of something that was lost in translation, just because um, as Genshin is translated in English, the academia isn't really like its name isn't really a reference to a religious institution. Um, And because of the association with um, higher level education being largely atheistic in the U.S. at least, or at least that's how stereotype. I think yeah. that that connection is just kind of lost, at least in the U.S. version of the game. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think the whole theocracy thing, in my opinion, was intentional. I think, especially when you see that, like, you know, it's like these people who are obsessed with dogma and orthodoxy so much that they're like literally going against their god that they were, you know, set up to, you know worship it's pretty obvious that what their intention was um so i think it, it really reflects well like with what happens with nilu uh, and not just nilu for like a lot of other characters they all suffer from the oppression uh that theocracy has kind of inflicted upon uh, this region for Definitely. centuries of centuries uh so i think that that's a really cool um sort of like symbolism with nilu and just, like it's so sad because her character has been consistently mischaracterized. Um, and like most of the times it's been by people who aren't Iranian. They're, they aren't from the culture, so they aren't able to un- understand it. Now, luckily, after I started to make posts on Twitter, um, I was very fortunate that my posts, for some reason, always kept uh, having a lot of reach. So a lot of people saw my posts, and uh, I've seen so many people um, in other contexts saying that Nilu actually means so much to Iranians, like, don't mischaracterize her. Like I've seen, it seems like a lot of people have become aware that she means so much to Iranian people. So th- this next part that I'm going to talk about is probably the one that has caused probably the most mischaracterization on Nilu. And that's the fact that she has an exposed belly. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the reason why this is weird is because of the fact that first and foremost, there is a huge stereotype of um, Western Asia, North Africa, and South Asia. 
and that's belly dancing. Uh, unfortunately, for some reason, people think that belly dancing is this super common thing in all of uh, countries from Western Asia, North Africa, and it's so uh, like present in everyday life, mm -hmm. and that every dance from there is supposed to be belly dancing. When in reality, that's not the case at all. Like, where did belly dancing, as we in the West know it, come from? Like, is it a okay. tourist? Is it like a tourist trap invention? Yes, like, exactly that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I will go over this very briefly because I don't want to overexplain Orientalism here, but belly dancing is actually an ancient dance. Um, and I think it used to be practiced both in Egypt and also by Romani people, if I'm not wrong. But the thing is, the modern variation of belly dancing came from the fact that uh, there was a cabaret in Cairo. Now, <laughs> the owner of this cabaret basically invented uh, a new type of dance and a new type of outfit to appeal to Western tourists. Oh. Uh, this outfit, which is called the Bedla, uh, and it's like this um, exposed belly, belly dancing outfit. It's supposed to be uh, what the Western uh, audience had already as stereotypes. It's like what they fantasized and what they expected. So the owner of this cabaret was like, okay, well, let's just give them what they want. So like, uh, invented this uh, new variation of both the dance and uh, the outfit. So now it became this fetishized, super uh, different from what it was before. And the origin was just genuinely fetishization and this stereotype. Like, that's that's the literal origin. It's a uh, sexy Halloween costume. Oh yeah. my god. But before that, I want to talk about her exposed belly because uh, Despite the fact that a lot of people saw Nilu's exposed belly and thought that this supposed this is supposed to be a belly dancer outfit stereotyping her, it's super weird to me because Nilu's outfit doesn't look like a belly dancer outfit. The only similarity that it has to the belly dancing outfit is that it has an exposed belly, um, which might seem like a significant thing. But the fact is, a lot of other characters from Genshin also have exposed bellies. She's not the first character to have an exposed belly. We had exposed belly characters in uh, Inazuma and Liyue. So it's not like she, like they certainly started with her. And also the fact that her... Like, if you look at a belly dancer outfit, it doesn't look like Nilu's outfit. It's just that the only similarity is the fact that it, it's the, the belly is exposed and the fact that she dances. So well, it's, and also, it, it's also kind of like, okay, we all got Princess Jasmine in our brains. Or, yeah. or Shantae. It's like crop top sleeveless or short sleeves exposed exactly. belly and then like big baggy like bottoms so like the silhouette and note to myself when i'm editing this when i need a visual example of like of what a belly dancer outfit is by a diagram please put a picture of ether up um <laughs> oh no <laughs> that's, a note, that's a note for future you're surreal for this beefy <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I am completely, I completely agree with everything you just said. Holy shit, we cracked it, boy. We figured it out. <laughs> like, like I will say, like I definitely went through. Like, I mean, I thought she looked like a belly dancer, but I, it's definitely because, like, I don't have the familiarity with the Iranian motifs, and I know what bad rep looks like, and it looks like Jasmine from Aladdin, and so my yes. Clothing with a jasmine esque contour, and I'm like, oh, they fucked up. And it, then it takes, you know, you with your actual. You can see that in you can, you can see that in Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is existing context in the yeah. same product to like jump yeah. to these conclusions. Yeah, for sure. But I think that's kind of why that, like, talking through 
these kinds of things with people who are more familiar with them are really important. Yeah. Because, like, Genshin and, to a lesser extent, other gotcha, FGO, are, like, capable as being platforms for really familiarizing yourself with, like, other cultures. But to cross that threshold, you actually need to be aware of what other cultures look like. Yeah. Which it's always... You lose design and, like us getting more cultural context from our initial shock and oh they fucked up too oh i get it oh there's stuff here that's literally why you are on the show today it's like yeah oh, we should talk to the people who know this shit first. yeah for sure yeah also like uh, like um just putting some stuff on the uh, what i talked because i was talking about the sexualization remark and this is really important because a lot of people will say that oh why is she wearing like open clothing like she's supposed to be sexualized but the thing is i most of the iranian players that i talked about which is, which i said most of them are women they're actually okay with the fact that she's wearing open clothing do you know why because women are forced in iran to cover themselves yeah. that's the problem now i have seen iranians who also think that it's a stereotype don't get me wrong because uh, and this is something i've mentioned before that no like, it, it's going to be impossible for everyone from the same culture to have the exact same opinion yes. on every character. So I have seen uh, people say also the fact that they think Nilo is stereotyped because of the fact that she has uh, an exposed belly. But first off, that doesn't change the fact that most Iranians absolutely adore Nilo. Like, that's just a completely different thing. Even the people who think that she's stereotyped, they still absolutely adore Nilo. Uh, but for her, even the idea of Nilu being stereotyped is in conflict. And I have talked to a sufficient number of Iranian women who think uh, that it's okay that she's wearing, uh, or they find it liberating that she's wearing like oh like that because they can't do it in Iran. It's it's like uh, they would get arrested or they would get harmed uh, if they were to expose themselves like that. I think this is also like very important why you should really let the people from the cultures talk because even me, because I'm an Iranian man, ultimately, um, like for me, what an Iranian woman says is much more important than what I think uh, because like they are much closer to what Nilo is supposed to represent, which is why I said like there are a lot of Iranian women who think that she's liberating. Like it's not in my position to definitively say that she is definitely a stereotype or that she is definitely... Um, the exposed belly is okay because I've seen both perspectives. But most um, of the women of the Iranian players I've talked about, they think that she's it's liberating that she's wearing like open clothing like that. Yeah, so the, uh, the I think important thing is to have the context, whether or not you agree with the takeaway. At least like you write the basis of facts to to make your own opinion. Uh, so, okay, Dory, now we get to the sumpter in the room. Ooh, yikes. Uh, now this is, this one is really complex. Now, yeah, let me see, how do I approach Dory's situation, honestly? Hey, Amir, yeah. what is Dory's cultural significance? <laughs> what, what is male world culture is Dory a faithful representation of? Aladdin. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Aladdin culture, yes. The Aladdin culture, yes. So, okay. This is definitely the place I'm going to talk about Orientalism. So first, let's try to um, explain what Dory is, and um, then I will get to the Orientalism part. Um, okay, uh, but no, let's get serious. Um, now, before discussing Orientalism, I'm going to talk about the fact that her design, most of it is just an Aladdin ripoff. Um, you know, the 
crop top, basically the pants. Like it's it's you you see it and it's it's pretty obvious that they were trying to yeah, reference Latin turban thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's embarrassing. This looks like something from I don't know a German theme park. Yeah, like there are some very loosely inspired components from um, from Turkish, for example. Uh, her hat, uh, it seems to be very similar to the hats uh, people would wear during the Ottoman Empire, especially men. Uh, same thing can be said about her shoes. Uh, that also looks like the kind of shoes that are like not just in Ottoman period, but also like in Turkey today. But those shoes are worn in other cultures in Western Asia as well. The rest really just looks like an Aladdin repast, to be honest. Especially considering the fact that her uh, constellation is called the Magic Lamp. So there you have it. Um, and uh, also the fact that she's literally has like a genie. So I mean, uh, now the thing uh, about why we say that Aladdin is Orientalism. Now you have to first understand what Orientalism is. Uh, Orientalism is basically the perception of the Western world, of the collective known as the Orient. It included North Africa, Western Asia, South Asia, and East Asia. And everything outside of Christendom. Now, I explained how the West, you know, viewed the East as this Orient thing. Uh, and in order to um, kind of create this image uh, of an area that was inferior to them in terms of culture... Uh, they had to do a lot of stereotyping. And they did this through a lot of artistic depiction, uh, which are called Orientalist arts. Now, back then, uh, the Orientalism movement didn't have a negative connotation. Uh, they kind of viewed it as this study of the East. They would call it like Oriental studies, uh, in which uh, people would draw arts. They would go over there and study the cultures. They would study things like Islam. I'm sorry about the lightning and the... <laughs> background by the way i already warned you about this so Fuck i'm you, sorry right in oh. <laughs> uh but uh just continuing along that so uh back then it didn't have a negative connotation but the motive behind that was very obvious it was supposed to portray the east as this uh, collective that hadn't really progressed in terms of their civilization they were behind the west whereas the west was very developed um and then people from the west would go to the east to help them improve um, and if they would draw art, it would be from a Western lens. Uh, they created a lot of stereotypes in the minds of the people in the West who had never traveled to the East. And when I say East, I really just mean the entirety of Asia, East. which is an insane... Yeah, yeah. yeah, so this is like an insane uh, conflation of everything. Uh, but they would really just do this. Um, and nobody was interested in hearing these authentic people from those cultures tell their own story because they didn't trust them to. They're like, well, they're just so mysterious and completely like non-understandable from a white Christian perspective. Yeah, yeah. We have to send our white Christian people to decipher their mysteries and tell us everything. A very interesting thing is that uh, this whole Orientalist thing is actually very old. Uh, and it even preceded the times that I'm talking about because like, one of the first instances of Orientalism was how Greeks portrayed the Persians or how they talked about Persians in their uh, in their records. Mm. Uh, and uh, one of the finest examples of this is uh, the way Greeks uh, understood uh, the prophet Zarathustra and Zoroastrianism as a whole. They, the Greeks seemed to think that he was like an astrologer. Uh, and like he did sorcery and that's where the whole magi thing came from because magi originally they were Zoroastrian priests 
Mm. Um, and then like that word uh, became magic and you, you see where, where I'm coming from? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's that of the word, the word magic comes from. And that's why it's always, uh, in a lot of depictions of Eastern, uh, quote unquote, um, cultures, they all, they always mingle in magic in there. Like no, magic actually, mystery. I actually touched on a really good point, which if it like, from what I'm hearing, like a really key point of Orientalism is like simultaneously like both denigration of a culture but also saying oh but they have that cool mystic stuff that we're really interested in i, mean, I know for a fact that, like uh tarot cards come see from that today like, yeah yeah exactly but all like the new age new age bullshit but i think like the same it's still negative overall because the same conceit running through the positive and the negative is that it's fundamentally unknowable yeah, exactly. That's what. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Say it's like they're they're a culture we can't know. They're yeah. too mysterious. They're like an, uh, they're they're kind of in another world. They're the from, Jedi. Like, like they're just it's, it's, they're not normal people living a normal life. Orientalism wasn't originally understood as a negative thing. Orientalism was just a movement that was supposed to be centered around studying uh, cultures from what people uh, defined as the Orient. Uh, and uh, when Edward Said um, basically did his works on Orientalism, he defined it as like this intentionally motivated, uh, stereotypical depiction of cultures from these places that was supposed to depict them in a, like a backward way um, that uh, were opposite to the West. So like our negative understanding of Orientalism is really thanks to the works of uh, Edward Said. Uh, and um, he has a lot of, I think he wrote like several books, uh, not just on Orientalism, but just like in general, the various ways in which the West uh, stereotypes Western Asia and North Africa and, and South Asia as a whole. That is awesome. Thank you, Edward Said, for furthering the discussion. Uh, we wish Mihoyo had listened to you a little bit better, but... Uh, and that's where it became to, oh my God, do you hear that from the background? She is pissed. <laughs> she is hurling those chocolates. She oh, is mad. We're, we're about to have a vision hunt decree. Oh, God. Girl, oh, <laughs> we talked about you for like five episodes. Just because we're not talking about you now doesn't need to throw a little shit fit. Oh, man. Okay, uh, let's continue. I'm, I'm getting too sidetracked. Uh, but um, basically, one of the examples of Orientalism was uh, the addition of the story of Aladdin into 1001 Nights because. Um, Aladdin, although today it's understood as the story of 1001 Nights, it's not an actual authentic story in it. It was added by this French author called Antoine Galland. Aladdin specifically. Now this one, yeah, this one really became overused and it, it kept getting worse every time it got depicted mm. because people kept adding more and more stereotypes to it. Um, because like now we have that whole belly dance trope in uh, Aladdin depiction as well. But the belly dancing thing, it has become like a tool to constantly stereotype and also degrade. It's its used specifically a lot to degrade uh, women from uh, from North Africa and, and Western Asia and even right. South Asia. Because whenever they want to uh, show this uh, woman that can be taken advantage of easily, uh, they will just put that woman in a, in a belly dancing outfit. Or a woman that can be fetishized easily. Like, that's literally what slave Leia came from. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like... It's supposed to be like the slave look, like a, yeah. a sex slave look. That's that's uh, That was the Western sort of stereotype. And it's very unfortunate because it became such an overused rope in media to an insane degree 
that today, whenever we have any kind of fictional media uh, that is related to Western Asia, North Africa, and South Asia, you will have artists who draw their own OCs and they'll use the belly dancing outfit, even though it's not even authentic. Like it happened so many times with Sumeru, where I saw like characters like Al Haysam, like calls it, uh, in belly dancing outfits. Like, why are you guys doing this? Uh, it's just a stripper outfit. Yeah. We're practically naked. No, we're no still again, fun. we're telling you emphatically, please don't stop drawing this. Especially no. with COVID, I'll hate them. Never stop drawing that. Just know that it's not authentic. Oh, please. No, please, please do stop drawing them, please. Amir, <laughs> <laughs> goddammit. <laughs> don't call it Sumerian have... style. Call it tourist thoughty style. Just, just do. We've suffered enough. Please do not do My draw eyes. Them, draw them in sexy lena hoses. <laughs> like... we, we've seen. We've seen this so many times. Like it, it hurts, especially when they put it on Nilu. It's like, please, that guys. Sucks. Yeah, that that yeah. really sucks. I've seen because I've seen them do this to Nilu, and it just hurts me so much. Oh. It's like we already have this stereotyping from people on her actual design, uh, and then they draw it in in a like a pretty pretty blatant, and they put the mask on it too, and it's just like, mm. please, it's right. so bad. But um, all right, please. Slut up your characters in different outfits that are not appropriate yeah. to. <laughs> if you're going to draw characters in sexy clothing, that's completely fine. Just don't use a belly dancing outfit as your origin, please. I am for. Let's, let's I'm. That. Yeah, just let that die, please. And can we get rid of that in media? But uh, anyway, um, I think that's about explains what Orientalism is. You get it. Like it's an othering, stereotyping, degrading of uh, cultures. Now. Uh, like I said, originally it used to include Eastern Asia, but today um, it's really directed mostly at North Africa, Western Asia, and South Asia, especially because of uh, stuff like Aladdin. Um, because Eastern Asia right now, uh, they've been pretty successful in, in making media about their own culture, so people are more aware of their cultures. And also stereotyping of Eastern Asian cultures is still a thing, but it's much less uh, in comparison to the cultures here in Sumeru. Yeah, because they have enough authentic voices where you know, okay, I can easily find an example of this done better. So, um, discussing that, now we go back to Dory. I had to describe all of this context to, a, to explain why Dory is a problem. Because A, obviously the fact that her entire design is just an Aladdin ripoff and the fact that she has like the magic lamp in her uh, constellation and she literally has a genie as her uh, companion. Now, jinn, um, technically, they're authentic creatures from uh, Arabian mythology. But the thing is, like, it's pretty obvious that genie in question in Dory isn't supposed to be authentic. It's just supposed to be the genie in the magic lamp. It's like it's, it's pretty obvious it's yeah. supposed to be an Aladdin thing. Um, and the fact that, you know, her name is Persian. Uh, she has like this Ottoman style hat. And also the fact that her dish, especially dish, butter chicken, is, it's an Indian dish. She, she's really all over the damn place. So I would say that Dory, it's not just design-wise. Her entire concept as a character is Orientalist. Just reiterating about like cultural conflation. Like oh. the issue with Dory is not that she combines a bunch of different cultures it's that she does so with absolutely no justification for right she does it with stereotype because it, it we have, yeah. yeah because we do have other characters who use Suko. for example Nahida, Tazunari, um they use both two cultures but uh 
Um, they do it with intent. Yeah, but it's it actually makes sense. Like it's coherent. Yeah. But with Dory, it's just it's they're used together to stereotype. It's like for the purpose of stereotyping specifically. Yeah, like you can um, you can blend cultures, but it kind of helps to have a, an in an like an an in lore justification for it. And that was something that they did that I thought was really smart from a from a cover your ass perspective, which is that they had three gods in Sumeru. Yeah. To to make it an in setting like cultural mix precisely like for example the goddess of flowers pretty much all of the lore relating to her it's um either related to zoroastrianism or iranian culture and every character who makes reference to her is uh, iranian in origin so uh same for deshret obviously um with like the north african components mm. and then ruka devada with like the indian component so they were pretty cool with those uh but yeah dory is just uh, um and Unfortunately, this has shown itself into her personality as well, because the whole greedy merchant thing is a common stereotype of people from Western Asia. Yeah, she's just that guy from the beginning of the Aladdin trying to sell you Tupperware. Precisely. Like, you see this a lot in which uh, there's that, like, greedy scale, like, a character who's trying to scam and stuff like that. That bizarre, yeah. I have, have, uh, you know, stuff to sell. Like, it's you've seen this stereotype, obviously. Mm -hmm. So it's, like, just her entire concept she's just supposed to embody stereotype in orientalism as a whole uh which is really unfortunate because it's like why would they do this especially because of the fact that they were capable of putting a lot of research into all these other characters but when it came to dory the most basic stereotype um and the unfortunate thing about it is that they released the aladdin and hankai impact the third after the release of sumeru so people had already shown their criticism People have already talked about the fact that, hey, this is a stereotype, but they don't really seem to care. I, I think they love Aladdin for whatever reason. Uh, because they really don't seem to care. We'll talk. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that more. We yeah, uh, colorism. Uh, yeah. Uh, so this next part, let's let's go with uh, the negative. The major negative components of Sumeru. Now, I already discussed uh, the negative components of uh, some of the characters, uh, especially Dory. Obviously, we don't have to go back to Orientalism because I went to that in detail. But there are two uh, other major problems in Sumeru. And these are actually very intertwined with one another because one of them amplifies the effect of the other. And they would be the colorism problem and then the portrayal of racism. Uh, and I'll start with the colorism uh, and kind of integrate it into the discussion about the portrait of racism. Now, colorism is a problem in the entirety of Genshin. It's not limited to Sumeru. Um, we know that, you know, it's it's not like Sumeru is the first nation in the game. We have all the other nations and uh, the only two characters we had that had, like, none uh, that had other than uh, a pale skin color, Roshinian and Kaya, but everyone else was just pale uh in this lily white like not yeah, exactly. white as in caucasian but the palest like human yeah you know? uh but with sumeru it really became uh sort of a, in a more easily recognizable problem because of the fact that a they took uh inspirations from so many different cultures and b uh these cultures have massive skin tone diversity uh, and their skin tone diversity exceeds all the other nations that have been portrayed in the game. And they took uh, specifically a character, and I'm going to talk, uh, and this is going to be with, uh, about Candace. Um, 
And the Kandakas historically, they were Nubian queens, so they were supposed to be dark-skinned. Nubians were always depicted in uh, Egyptian art as dark-skinned. And they, they, they took her and uh, they kind of portrayed her in, in a much lighter skin color, even though she's tan, but she's much uh, lighter than what could have been canonically. Yeah, they, I think they just like made her, I guess, Egyptian. It, it it always seems like if there's a plausible reason for them to make someone more fair skinned, they always go with it. You know, it's like it's like it with Nahida, like Nahida, like people sometimes use the fact that, oh, well, Nahida has Iranian inspirations. OK, sure. What about her Indian part then? We're just going to ignore that. Uh, because people will say, well, Iranians are pale, so it's okay if Naida is pale. It's like, no, she has an Indian side. It doesn't yeah. make sense. They, they, it, it had to have been, at least to create a balance, it had to have been like a tan uh, that was a good representation. Because even Iranians have skin tone diversity. So really, the best option... Talking about Iranian and Persian influences because they were such a big medium for all this multicultural mixing. So it's... And there's diversity. Absolutely. I mean, the Achaemenid Empire was just insanely multicultural. It, it included literally every skin color you can imagine. But if we're going to talk about colorism, this was the worst possible thing that they could do. To make everyone from the rainforest pale, and then to only put the uh, tan skin characters from the desert. Now, there are pale characters from the desert too. For example, Babel from the desert, she has pale skin. So it's not like everyone from the desert is tan skin. Everyone who is tan skin is from the desert. Yeah. Even the NPCs that you encounter in the rainforest who have tan skin, the game makes sure to tell you that that NPC is from the desert. The idea that there's no people with darker skin living in rainforest climates, which is like just exactly fucking wrong. Just like we've seen in real history, it has all been about mingling cultural uh, influences and people and ideas and. That's the point of the cultures that you're trying to portray in this region. And yet somehow, for some reason, it's just like all these people here are in, living in places of privilege are all just lily white. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's like, it's supposed to be the prejudice stems from basically it boils down to what god you worship. But isn't it just so convenient that all the people that worship the wrong god look like this? Exactly. Like, this is the thing. Like, well, if we look at the playable characters, you can make an individual case for each character in the rainforest is that, oh, well, it makes sense because there are people from that culture who are pale. Sure, Colvin, there are blonde, natural blonde Iranians. Absolutely. There are pale uh, Arabs who look like Al-Haytham in terms of that skin color. But that's not the point. They didn't make these characters to represent the pale population of Iran or pale population of there. Yeah, isn't it funny how even though some people look like this, that every single person in Genshin looks like this. Every exactly. It's pretty obvious that uh, Hoiverse has always been a colorist company. Let's not fool ourselves. This isn't. This didn't start with Sumeru. It's just that with Sumeru, it became a very noticeable problem because of the segregation of skin colors between the two regions. And you have now a situation where all the compendium of the you know the playable characters from the rainforest they're all pale like that. Uh, and, you know, and the reason for that is obvious. It's all because of colorism, you know, um, and you can even you can try to like make individual cases, but it doesn't matter because that wasn't their intention. Their intention was the same for all of the previous regions is that they're a colorist company yeah. and they're trying to appeal because colorism is a thing in Eastern Asia as a whole. 
and it's been yeah. historically recurring. Like there were already colorist uh, depictions in Eastern Asian media, which has created a demand in the Eastern Asian audience where they would prefer more media that is colorist. So there's this double layer in which the colorism mentality in the company itself is reinforced by the fact that they know that their audience also wants that. So it's like, well, we'll just give them what they want. Uh, uh, like so... for, for context, if you have never been to an East Asian country, uh, like J Japan, China, or Korea, um, if you're like me and you're from America, like you're going to be shocked when you walk into a department store and there is two colors of concealer, both of which are like goth pale. Like it's it's really whack. It's a huge problem. And a, a lot of Southeast Asian content creators can speak to it better than, than us. And it, it's not great. That is yeah. like, this is the thing where I've really lost so much faith with MiHoYo because I've given them the benefit of the doubt about this basically since the game came out. And I think what what did it for me was um, reading uh, C.C. Zhang's interview with the, the Honkai Star Rail dev team and asking mm -hmm. if we would see more, more skin tone diversity. And they basically uh, just like treated it as if it wasn't even... It, it, they weren't even interested in that idea. Yeah. Like it just... And... It's not on their agenda. They don't care about it. I mean, yeah. I already kind of, like, I knew it because I, the game, it was obvious that there was a colorist game. So before Sumeru came out, I already knew that Sumeru, they were going to be mostly pale. It was so obvious to me. We were all, like, sweating. Yeah. <laughs> we have been sweating for years, like, oh, yeah. no. Yeah. Oh, no. It was the most heartbreaking thing about Sumeru is realizing that they don't have an interest in authentic portrayal of cultures outside of China. Yeah, and I think we mentioned this in another episode too. It's like these are problems that are endemic to essentially like media production as a whole. But because Genshin is a game where it's about travel and about like talking about other cultures, it just becomes all the more like blatant. Yeah, that these problems are large. You know that the, they're they are so interested and willing to research cultural insights and and literature and and design cues and stuff from these cultures, but they're not willing to make people who look like people from those they're not, and not yeah. a very select, like, sample. Yeah, because they're not interested in the people, they're just interested in their culture. Yeah, it's like, how the fuck do you think made this stuff? <laughs> people, yeah. a lot of different people. Okay, and this is where I segue into the next part, which is the portrayal of racism, because this is important. It connects with the colorism problem, and it's amplified by it, right? Now, in the lore of Sumeru, obviously we have the history of the fact that people from the desert have been consistently and uh, constantly oppressed by people of the rainforest region, uh, especially by the academia, because academia is very authoritarian. Uh, and during the Archon Quest, I would say the game does a fairly good job of uh, sort of delineating that what the academia has been doing is wrong. And the fact that the fact that they oppressed uh, the people of the desert was a wrong thing, especially because we work uh, with Dehia uh, and we actually go directly to the desert. We see uh, the situations in, in which they're in. Uh, we work with them to overthrow the academia. I think to this part, uh, it was done pretty well. The way they portrayed the racism, it was condemned, right? It yeah. was sufficiently condemned by the story. They were like, yes, this is an evil thing. 
The problem came in the world quest that followed, and um, it started with a golden slumber in uh, the Great Red Sand. Now, in here, we have Tirzad, who is a scholar coming from the academia, uh, and he is clearly trying to show superiority in terms of knowledge over the locals, uh, Jet and her father. And you, as the traveler, are not really giving an option to condemn that behavior. It's kind of like you're passive towards the situation. And Tirzad is just saying whatever you want. Now, by the end of the golden slumber, the only redeeming thing is that uh, Tirzad actually regrets everything he does. Like at the end, when you talk to him, he realizes that his entire perception was wrong and the way he treated them was wrong. But then the next quest, which is the Dirge of Bilkis in Desert of Hadramath. Now, this is really the worst part. Uh, and uh, this is really where I started to... Uh, get a very negative uh, view of Sumeru. Uh, because up until then, problems existed in Sumeru, and I was aware of them, and I would criticize them. But this is really where it started to really hit me from like on a deep level, especially uh, after you encounter Lilupar, right? Mm -hmm. And now Lilupar, just before getting to the whole dialogue thing, the fact that Lilupar is a genie lamp uh, is by itself such a cheap stereotype. Like, you could have made sure a jinn, because jinns are authentic figures from mythology. You didn't have to make an Egidio lamp to just reference the Aladdin. Here, like, as far as a jinn, they'd have to character design her and give her animation and stuff, and here we could just put her in a bottle that floats. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, it was it was unnecessary, really. But this is I'll not even... up the party later. Sumeru's just like... That. Sumerius, <laughs> like, we'll do all this research, but remember, remember, magic traveler, the magic lamps and the magic carpets are always right around the corner. Yeah. Aladdin. Just Aladdin. <laughs> research, but also Aladdin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did that, work, but also we want magic fucking lamps. Yeah, but, okay, but uh, the most important part is the dialogues with this uh, Lidu Power. Now, this is really the, uh, the most uh, insufferable part, because... From the very beginning, Liliupar's um, approach and her, her tone uh, towards Jet is just absolutely horrible. And it's like a direct copy uh, of real-life uh, language that is used to stereotype and discriminate uh, against people uh, who uh, are stereotyped as Middle Easterners. But in this case, it would be North Africans and Arabs, right? Mm -hmm. Uh like, there's explicit words and phrases that Lilupari uses against Jet that are just, like, very trademark things that are used in real life, like racially motivated lines. I don't want to repeat them because they're just disgusting, honestly. Uh, but it's just, it, it left such a terrible impact on me. And the worst part about this is you see all of this clearly racially discriminating remarks uh, that... Uh, clearly reflect real life uh, racially discriminated remarks and you as the traveler are not given an option to fight back. You're not given an option to condemn it. Uh, you're just passive, standing there really. Or if you're given a line, it's like irrelevant to the discussion itself. It's like changing the subject without condemning that behavior at all. Even Paimon yeah, uh, who runs her mouth all the time, she says nothing about the fact that why uh, are you using this language towards um, Jed? It's just, it's so bad, uh, and there is absolutely no justification for it at all. Hey, Amir, you want me to tell you something that's worse? Yeah. There is a time when the Traveler stands up to prejudice. Oh, really? It's when Hania is prejudiced against the fungi. Oh, no. Yeah. 
The Traveler yeah. literally has a dialogue option that is say no to prejudice. And oh, and that uh, so, yeah. and that occurs in the Mushroom Pokemon event about Mushroom Pokemon. And, and telling, and, telling an Aramite woman. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Oh, 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 man. Oh, no. I, I didn't even remember that. Yeah. But not yeah. when it really matters. Oh, quest that's going to be in the game forever. Uh, wow. Oh no! Yeah, the oh, reaction. God, oh, no. that, that is so messed yeah, up. Honestly, yeah, it's like with with how nosy the traveler is and all the business they butt into the fact that they're just kind of mum about fucking racism, not just through one like quest, but like three. Yeah, unless it's a mushroom Pokemon, like that. Yeah. That sucks. That and, fucking blows. And you can't you can't use the argument of well the traveler is always like that. They don't like to involve themselves in the discussion. Well, well, here's an example that completely disproves that. B- bitch, we are the errand boys and girls of everyone in Tibet. We will do anything for anyone at the drop of a pin. And you're telling me that we don't stand up to like fucking racism. Also, one thing about Genshin is that Genshin, uh, it's not one of those. Um, pieces of media that it shows, for example, at dark concepts and uh, it shows suffering and oppression and uh, that it just narrates them in a passive way. Like in the story of Genshin, there is this clear theme of good versus evil. Uh, they don't try to be ambiguous about it, right? They do show certain things as evil. They show they show certain things as good and they condemn the bad parts. So you can't make the argument that, oh, well, Genshin has always been like this. They, they show they portray racism, but they don't condemn it. It's like, no, they have portrayed evil and condemned it before. Yeah, we saw that they're always forcing their beliefs yeah, on everybody. Absolutely. Right. And yeah, but like, why doesn't that extend to a clear instance of racism? Especially because like, they're literally the dialogues that are used in real life. I don't know what the Chinese version of these dialogues are, to be honest, because I said, I've heard some people say the Chinese version is not like that, but I have my doubts about it. I don't know. The only thing I know is that the English version is horrible. Wow. Uh, and there, there's absolutely no excuse uh, with the way they did that. I think the portrayal of racism was terrible. And, and the fact that even the fact that they did a good job in the Archon quest, it doesn't change what they did with the World Quest. It absolutely doesn't. That's not even where it stops because like the whole Desert of Hadramaveth quest is it's literally fulfilling with Nilu Power was stereotyping so much is that, oh, you can't trust people from the desert. It's like, uh, I, I've probably talked about this so many times during like the pre-recording thing. I said how much grievance I had with the specific quest. And that's why, because it's so bad on so many levels. Now, imagine me, I'm not even from these cultures. Imagine what people from these cultures feel, because I've seen uh, players, North African and Arab players who just absolutely dis- dislike this so much. And I've seen so many people say that it ruined their entire experience with Sumeru. And that's completely valid. It's to heartbreaking. Be yeah. It's heartbreaking. I'm sure that if I, if my culture was butchered like that, I would have felt the same way. It's just like, you have to put yourself in the shoes of people from these cultures and the way they're portrayed. And it's just like, it's it's just so messed up, honestly. Um, and it was unnecessary. And you can't tell me that it was unintentional because it's just like, uh, it's so. It seems like it's it's motivated, really. Um, the fact that they just seem to have no curiosity about doing a better job than they do—that's 
Yeah. That's what really sucks. Obviously, there's a language barrier, barrier and a social media barrier of getting the thoughts of people in the Anglo Twitter sphere to MiHoYo HQ, but just like, oh, yeah. man, please, please, somebody yeah. realize you can do better. Yeah, this was all made. You have so much money. You can afford consultants. You can get like, but I, yeah, I think they, they just don't care enough. Yeah, I, that's the thing. I don't think they care. And yeah. like the whole situation with like uh, them researching on so many cultures, I think it's just at the end of the day to create lore because they want to make their world look interesting. They need to fill. Um, they need to. Yeah, exactly. Big. And the best way is to just take stuff from real life cultures. I don't think they care about respecting cultures at all. Um, even the instances, for example, I, I've talked about like us Iranians being very happy with the way they did Nilo. I think ultimately it's just um, them wanting to like make their game look sophisticated and not necessarily because they love Iranians so much they want to think of us. They on appreciate that. cultures, but whether they respect them is almost entirely coincidental. Yeah, right. So for the last part of our discussion about Sumeru, I would like to talk about the positive components of Sumeru. Um, now, this one is going to be a little bit interesting because just like the negative parts, there are uh, things that you can say uh, objectively about Sumeru, and then there's going to be things that you can say subjectively about Sumeru. Um, now, some of the things that can be said like from a factual and objectively consistent perspective uh, for Sumeru is that the music of Sumeru was extremely well done. Um, and it is the best music they've done. <laughs> for sure. And this is true for all of the regions they did, starting from the rainforest, all the desert parts. They were all incredibly well done, not just because the melodies composed were extremely memorable, but also because of the fact that they actually used traditional instruments. They released a video on it. They said that the, the, for the rainforest region, they specifically went for Indian instruments to uh, reflect the fact that the rainforest has a lot of Indian and South Asian components. And then for the desert, they went for uh, quote-unquote Middle Eastern and North African instruments. Uh, so they definitely tried to use instruments in a way that was intentional to represent each region based on the cultures that uh, were represented in that region. And one thing that's especially great is... When they do the music, they find expert players of these heritage instruments. Like, they get the talent from the parts of the world or, or wherever. Like, they will actually find these authentic artisans who play it the best, and they will pay them the big money to play their instrument in the in the score for Genshin. Yeah, absolutely. And when you look at the credits, they're all people who are from these cultures. Uh, which is like super cool that they consulted with like traditional uh, musicians. And the player base also, pretty much most of the player base I've talked uh, to and seen agree that the music was extremely well done. So it's just, uh, it's general consens consensus from a subjective experience as well from the player base, people from the cultures, as well as of course people who are not from the cultures and just played the Subaru and loved it, you know, mm -hmm. for the music. Um, but uh, moving on from the musical component, we have the foods, uh, and the, the foods were also extremely well done because Sumeru uh, features so many different cultures, and one of the best things they did was that they used dishes from all of these cultures. Uh, they did a better job of including 
uh, cuisines from cultures than making characters from the cultures. <laughs> because uh, we have we have cultures that they used cuisine from that they didn't make characters for. For example, the baklava and the tulumba, these are Turkish cuisine, but they didn't make any Turkish characters. They used a diversity, like a huge yeah. diversity of cuisines. Like we have the pani puri, uh, we have the butter chicken, um, which are from Indian cuisine. Then we have the tahchin, which is from Persian cuisine. Also the sabz meat stew is from Persian cuisine. Uh, we have the fatte, which is from Arab, specifically Levantine cuisine. We have the shawarma. Uh, it's originally a Turkish dish, but it's also used in um, a lot of different Western Asian countries as well. Halva. Halva. They even made a point in the description of the halva in Genshin to say they also make this in Snezhnaya, but they use sunflower seeds, which is just like real life. Like, yeah, it's such a fun little nod. Yeah, uh, they use a lot of North African dishes too. Like, for example, the aru mixed rice. It's like a, it's a specific Egyptian dish. It's called the koshari. Uh, and it looks like the design of all these dishes reflect very well how they look in real life. And they're gorgeous. They look so good. <laughs> and then there's the taiji. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right. I'm very sorry to all the North African uh, people watching this, but the tajin or tajina, I think, uh, which you is the pronounce it, comment below. Yeah, please. Uh, which is Deya's specialty dish. That also looks super nice. Um, and I've seen again, uh, huge consensus among the player base that they love the way they made the foods. So that's just, this is another popular thing that is both objectively uh, a positive uh, component of Sumeru and also something that the players will really agree on. Yeah. Oh, and this hand. Okay, this is this, this uh, where I should talk about yes. the like, Kalve and Ahe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so basically, Alhaytham's specialty dish, right? Uh, I've seen people say that this is... Uh, I've seen multiple Levantine Arab dishes proposed as the root for this dish, and this is the specialty dish itself. Um, and but the template dish in game, which it is made from, is called sabz meat stew. And sabz meat stew is based on a Persian dish called orma sabzi. It's very popular in Iran. And Alhaytham takes this template dish, makes it look completely different. Uh, just she transforms it into a separate thing. That looks like a Levantine Arab dish, uh, and then you have kalve, and the specialty dish of kalve looks like a kind of dish we have in Iran. It's called the olivier. The template dish, which is he makes his specialty dish, is called the fatte, and fatte is originally a Levantine Arab dish, right? Mm. Uh, and um, now, by now, based on what I've talked about, you know that al Haytham is um, supposed to be based on an uh, Iraqi Arab mm. uh, scientist, while while kalve is Iranian. Now, Kalve takes a dish which is supposed to be originally from the culture of Alhaytham, and he transformed this into something that doesn't look like the original dish at all. <laughs> While Alhaytham takes uh, a dish from the culture of Kalve, which is supposed to be an Iranian culture, an Iranian dish, he transforms that into something completely different that is more attuned to his own culture. So this was like a super cool reference between the dynamic between these two characters. So funny. <laughs> they take each other's food, but only after they've transformed it to be unrecognizable to see yeah. their own personal taste, which is, it, it's, you yeah, know, it's just so dope. 
some of that was just to piss the other one off too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. This is very like, true. He's like secretly don't even like it. It's just like I'm eating this just to spite you. <laughs> it's it's just it's annoying. Like yeah. Oh, oh, this is this is your cuisine. Yeah, I'm changing that. <laughs> this isn't good enough. Let me let me show you how it's done. Yeah. <laughs> Still, I don't think so. You can't eat that when you're doing math. Presto, <laughs> changer. It's a flatbread now, idiot. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but it's just such a funny thing between them. They are hilarious. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, another thing that is um, a positive point is the research or lore that they did from real-life mythologies as well as languages and religions. For the rainforest region, we have extensive research into Buddhism, Hinduism, and Zoroastrianism. Mm -hmm. They find uh, common motifs uh, between dormant religions and Zoroastrianism, and they play around with it for the rainforest region. And I think this was super cool. Uh, and they use so such niche concepts from these religions that you wouldn't like find so easily when you uh, you know search about them uh, merely on the internet. Like you need, you have to know what you're searching. For. Right. Uh, but also they do a really good job of, of researching ancient Egyptian mythology for the desert side. They use a lot of specific Coptic terms. And they do it for Sino as well, like with the, all the Anubis references. I want to mention the Arnara quest because this was uh, one of my most favorite quests due to the fact that they did so much research on Hinduism and Buddhism, and they used so many Sanskrit and Pali terminologies. I don't think I've seen anyone do an entire post compiling all the Arnara names even though I'm pretty sure that each one of them is supposed to be like a Sanskrit or Pali word. Uh, but it's... The terminology is staggering. Yeah. In the R&R &R quest. The R&R &R quest was really one of the first examples of them doing a lot of research into mythologies and religions. And they do a really good job. And the quest is very long, right? So... You see a lot of references in there. Is it? Yeah. Is it very long? <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, it, it, it was like the R quest line was really one of the best examples of them doing research on lore. But the same thing can be said about the quest chain in the uh, the Girdle of the Sands, where they do such an amazing job with Hovarnev good and evil quest line, uh, because they do they they make such references to Zoroastrianism. Like they they take stuff from scripture, like for example the whole Tiryazad and uh, Apolsha and the fight between them. This is like literally a part of scripture. Ooh, wow. It's called it's it's called Tiryasht, and Tiryasht just means the hymn of Tiryazad, which is actually a part of the quest chain itself. There are such niche references to Zoroastrianism, and then it connects it with Alta Shamanism and Buddhism. So the research on lore also reflects with the way they design the characters because when I was talking about the characters I also described how a lot of the characters have abstract references to their cultures and we see that for example with Kalve and the fact that his constellations all reference historical uh, sites in Iran or the fact that they actually use the literal meaning of Ahithim's name uh, being Hawk and just make it a theme for him in many different aspects or the fact that they uh, use the whole um, concept of, uh, uh, that the historical Ibn al-Haytham was in the field of optics and they used the mirror thing, right? Yeah. Uh, 
So their research on lore is pretty consistent throughout everything they did. Uh, and it's probably one of, or perhaps you could say it was their best effort when it came to Sumeru. Now with playable characters, uh, there are positive points uh, that I've talked about already when I was discussing the characters. Uh, so I think that um, I don't need to repeat them here. The only thing I can say is that obviously characters like Nilu uh, and Kova are so important to us Iranians and we love these characters so much. And for North Africans, Dehia, Sino, uh, and Candice, they're also very popular um, among the North African player base. Same for Ahitham and Layla. Um, and Nahida, she's uh, kind of... Um, opinions on her are very divided. Yeah. Um, and some people uh, really don't like the fact that there's the colorism issue and the fact that she doesn't really have cultural references on her design, but I've also seen people who really like her. So opinions on this character are very divided, honestly. Uh, Tagmariel is also fairly popular, I would say, among both um, Amaziel and Arabs. Obviously, not everyone has the same opinion on these, but I suppose this is where I, I should segue into what should be the main takeaway message from all this discussion. You can never talk objectively about everything in Sumeru. The whole idea of Sumeru and whether Sumeru is bad or good can never be said in an objective way. There are components that can be identified as objectively good, and then there are components that can be identified as objectively bad, But and you will very much have people from the same culture having differing opinions about the same thing that is taken from their culture in the game, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure uh, what you guys have seen people say about Sumeru, but if someone tells you that people from the cultures that are used in Sumeru absolutely love it and they have no problems with it. And if you see people say, oh, people from the cultures uh, in Sumeru don't like it at all uh, and they think it's bad, both of these statements are incorrect. Right. Most of the player base lies somewhere in between. Like these two extreme sides of the spectrum are rare, at least for the sphere of people who actually care about lore and cultural inspiration. Because let's be honest, most of the player base just plays the game and doesn't care about these things, right? But my discussion really is about the people who actually care about lore, they do research, and they actually talk about cultural inspirations. And for the player base that is involved with these discussions, most of them lie somewhere in between that there are things they like about Sumeru and then there are things that they don't, and some people lean towards more the favorable uh, perception of it. Some people are more towards like the negative perception of it. I think that's really important too, because like through media, this is going to be someone's first exposure to a lot of these cultures. And even if it's, you know, not necessarily the best representation at times, like it's still worthwhile to explore how it represents um, what it purports to represent. Yeah, for sure. Also, like, one thing that I have experienced with, and a lot of players have experienced with, too, is that for a lot of us, this is the first time that they're using our cultures to such extensive degree in media. Like, for me, I've never seen uh, Zoroastrianism used in media to this degree with this amount of nuance and this amount of niche references. So there's no way I'm not going to love that, right? Like, it's just, it's just impossible for me because, like, I've never seen this before so i get excited when i see this in the game 
Uh, and for me, because um, I feel like I'm fortunate in a sense that they, for some reason, used so much of Iranian culture and mythology, and they used this throughout the entirety of Subaru. Um, and for like, this is why you will see most of the Iranian players of Genshin, they will say that there are problems with Sumeru, but most of them love, uh, there's things that they love about Sumeru a lot. And for me, my overall experience with Sumeru is ultimately positive. It's not my most favorite nation uh, because of the fact that there are some fundamentally fatal issues in it that I just cannot overlook. Um, especially that whole thing with the desert of Hadramaveth, it just, I, that decreased my overall uh, view towards uh, Sumeru. But overall, because so much of my culture was just used for the first time, my overall experience leans more to the favorable side. But my viewpoint is not an objectively correct viewpoint. It's just my personal experience. There are players who think that Sumeru kind of was ruined because of the instances of, let's say, the portrayal of racism, especially regarding the Aramites. That's a completely valid viewpoint. Uh, and that the fact that people from the same culture can really just have exact, like, complete opposite viewpoints towards one thing from their culture. Yeah. If there's one takeaway uh, from this discussion to the to the listening public, it would be this. So much of the anxiety around the portrayal in Sumir is because these are cultures that generally do not get platformed. And so the best thing that we can do as if you do not belong to these cultures is to not speak for them, but to listen. Take the opportunity to learn a bit about the culture, because if Sumir came from authentic cultural voices, we wouldn't be having a lot of this discussion, but it didn't. But that doesn't mean that it should be thrown out. Um, take this as an opportunity to learn and to listen and and do what Genshin did. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Also, I want to add that even uh, as a person who is from these cultures, make sure to always listen from people uh, who are cultures that are included in the game, but you're not a part of because Sumeru is very vast. So even if you are from the culture, one of these cultures, you can't speak for everybody. So uh, this whole takeaway message really um, is that you need to listen to people and that you have to, whenever you want to talk about Sumeru, you should say that there are people who believe this or people who believe that uh, and that um, you can have your personal experience about it, but you just can't speak objectively on everything. That's just uh, the result of so many cultures being used uh, in this region. Yeah. Learn from each other, gain that wisdom and one day one of you guys will make a video game about one of these cultures and it will be a lot better than Genshin did. And if that's the case, then what Genshin did was worthwhile in that it at least started the dialogue. Absolutely. And we're definitely hoping for that. Yeah. But this has been Iranian players' perspective on the Sumeru region. And Amir, you have been an absolute fucking delight. We have had so much fun. We have learned so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for agreeing to, to come on here and, and share your wisdom and uh, hopefully encouraging more discussion. If you're from one of the many, many cultures represented in Sumeru and you have a hankering to come on here and, and tell us some more perspectives, give us some more cultural insight, we would absolutely love that. Oh, absolutely. I'm also very grateful that you guys gave me this opportunity to be here. I know, obviously, you shouldn't just be listening to me, but you should be listening to a lot of different players 
uh, who are from the cultures in Shimeru. And then um, you can have an idea of what people think. Uh, but I'm very glad and I'm very grateful to have had this opportunity to be here and talk about uh, a lot of things and talk about my own experiences. Um, I also tried my best to voice a lot of um, opinions from the player base that I wasn't personally uh, part of their culture, but I thought it was important to talk about their grievances. It was really my pleasure to be here. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Amir, most of your content is uh, Twitter. Right. While Twitter, while it still is, you know, operational. <laughs> yeah. And where can the people find you there? So um, for people who know me, obviously this is going to be like common knowledge, but it's Boram76. My display name is just Amir and my username is Boram76. Sweet. Also, uh, just to give you a fun fact, the whole idea of Boram76, Bor is the three, the first three letters of my last name and M is from Amir and then 76 is the year of my birth in the Iranian calendar. Yeah, cool. It's been an honor. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much um, for it's joining us in the Shade Chamber. Likewise. Thank you guys so much for having me. You take a parachute on your way out. It's very high up. For sure. I'll, I'll definitely do that. <laughs> awesome. All right. Take care, man. Bye.